A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long forgotten murders, all set within London's West End. Today's episode is about Susan Moyer, an East End pauper who escaped poverty to become the mother to two boys and wife to a prosperous baker. And yet her new life was a fate worse than death. Murder Marley's research using the original court documents. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatisation of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I'm your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 44, Susan Moyer, The Brutal Life of the Baker's Wife. Today, I'm standing on Catherine Street, WC2, two streets east of the baby killer, James Richardson Mills, two streets south of Dora Friedman, the West End prostitute supposedly slaughtered by the infamous maniac known as Soho Jack, and one street north of Waterloo Bridge, where Bulgarian dissident Georgie Markov was assassinated by the KGB using an umbrella. Coming soon? to murder mark. Which between the historic bustle of Covent Garden and the infamous theatre district of Drury Lane, being barely 800 feet long, Catherine Street is a short but slightly sloped side street which begins at the Theatre Royal, ends at the Strand and with smog permitting her stunning views of the Thames. Laid out in the 1630s, Catherine Street, originally called Bridges Street, was, and still is, a vibrant hub, as being crammed full of theatres, pubs and posh eateries. It's here where the play's patrons swig back a pre-show pint, quaff coffee whilst quoting comedy, guzzle down a swift gin at the show's interval, or copiously weep over an entirely fictional character's tragic plight which in an easily digestible two-hour instalment is recreated on a fake stage, off a script, 
by badly paid actors, whilst the wobbly-lipped patron wolfs down a plateful of waffles. Today, it's a place of happiness, laughter and joy. And yet, there's one truly heart-wrenching tragedy which played out right underneath our feet, and it remains untold until today. If you're wondering why this section isn't filled with my usual mix of wit, jibes and sharp barbs, that's because, as this is a deeply tragic story about the horrors of domestic abuse, there's nothing funny to say. And although this murder occurred almost 170 years ago, it's a story which is just as relevant today. As it was here, at 25 Bridges Street, from Friday the 22nd, Saturday the 23rd, Sunday the 24th, to Monday the 25th of March, 1850, that a baker's wife called Susan Moyer was literally beaten to death. The most important moment in Susan Moyer's life was her death. As being a lower working class woman of no historical importance, living in an East End slum in the mid-1800s, almost nothing is known about her sad and tragic life except what happened in those final days. Her birth name was Susan Hare. She was born sometime, although we can't be certain, during the bleak winter months of 1811, somewhere amidst the ragged filth and festering squalor of Stepney in East London, as one of either six, seven or eight siblings, half of which died before they could even walk. Like many offspring raised to an East London pauper, Susan's early life was tough, harsh and cruel. Living a hand-to-mouth existence, some days she ate, some days she didn't. With diseases like cholera and dysentery running rampant, medicine was only for the wealthy. With malnutrition having ravaged her immune system, even a common cold could be deadly. And as a sickly child, who played amongst the rats in the feces-splattered streets with no shoes on her feet, who drank water which lay stagnant near an open cesspit, and every day breathed in the thick soupy air from the choking industrial smog which hung over the city like a looming cloud of death, with a third of all children dying before their fifth birthday. If she didn't starve, freeze, or succumb to death, the longest that Susan could hope to live for was into her mid to late thirties. So her chance of survival was literally that. Chance. And yet, for Susan, life was even worse. Not just because she was poor, not just because she was lower working class, and not just because she was sick, but because she was a woman. Like most young girls, except for two hours a week at Sunday school 
she was denied a basic education. Except for unskilled piecework, she was denied any training or a trade. And with no vote, very few rights, and almost no say in her own future, the best that Susan could hope for was to escape the poverty of her own ragged family by being married off into another. And so, it should have been the happiest day of her life, when in the spring of 1837, with her first baby boy on the way, 26-year-old Susan Hare married a 31-year-old Scottish tradesman with a steady income, an honest job, his own home, and a prosperous baker's shop at 25 Bridges Street. He must have seemed like the answer to all of her prayers, as with everyone needing bread, she'd never be cold, poor, or hungry ever again. But her husband's name was Alexander Moyer, and when he stated in his marriage vows that they would be together till death us do part, he meant exactly that. By 1850, Bridges Street was on its last legs. Some of the buildings had rotted away, others had been ransacked by robbers and rats, and what remained was just decades away from being demolished. And as a thick choking smoke drifted east from Bealfield's papier-mâché works, and every bankside furnace and toxic textile factory belched out great plumes of noxious fumes, been just six years before Soho's deadly cholera outbreak, and eight years before the Great Stink, which saw the city's main source of fresh drinking water, the River Thames, turned into a festering pile of floating turds. London was not only dangerous, it was deadly. But for Susan, it was home. At 25 Bridges Street stood Moyer's Bakery, a rickety old two-storey building made from warped timber and crumbling stone, with a roof having caved in years earlier. Only the front part of the upper floor was habitable enough to rent out to lodgers. So with the basement taken up by the bakehouse ovens and half of the ground floor converted into a shop, the Moyer family lived in the small back parlour which comprised of a kitchen where the children slept and a simple bed for Alexander and Susan. To the outside world, it looked like the perfect family business with Alexander baking, Susan selling and their sons, Alexander Jr., aged 13 and Jack, aged 7, delivering. And as hordes of hungry punters peered through the shop's large sash window to see shelves lined with golden loaves, baskets of soft buns, and trays of biscuits, crumpets, and hot cakes. As one of the few pleasant smells on the whole street, Moya's bakery must have seemed like a dream. But upon entering the bakery, that delightful image would be shattered by the sight of Susan, the sound of screaming, and the smell of fear. 
According to her autopsy, Susan Moyer was 39 years old. She was 5 foot 5 inches tall, thin, pale and frail. With wiry brown hair, ruddy cheeks and calloused hands. She walked with a stoop, but she wasn't sick. She looked haggard, but she wasn't old. She was always exhausted, but she never slept. And with her sunken and bloodshot eyes ringed with dark circles, her uneven cheeks swollen with an unsightly mix of yellow, brown and purple bruises, two broken fingers, several missing teeth, her whole body covered in welts, and her jaw hung open and low, so her ghostly white face looked as if it was perpetually stuck in the midst of a scream. Even though, by those who knew her, she was a deeply devoted mother who would do anything to protect her boys. She was always scared, tired and broken. And to combat this, it is said, she would drink. And so, what follows are the last days of Susan Moyer. Friday the 22nd of March 1850 was bleak, wet and cold. As a bitter wind whipped down Bridges Street and washed an inch-thick torrent of rain towards the Thames. Times were hard, money was tight and sales were short. So with good bread going to waste, once again, Alexander tutted. Having worked 16 hours a day for seven days a week since Christmas, it probably never occurred to him that drink wasn't the reason his wife swayed unsteadily on her feet. That a swollen jaw was why her speech was slurred. Or that being bruised was why she moved so slow. But with business being bad, and as she ran the shop, he knew that she was to blame. Alexander Moyer was a 44-year-old Scottish baker, a blunt, brutish bully boy who was short and squat like a bulldog, with an unkempt beard, unblinking eyes, a humourless grin, and after a stint in the Navy, he had arms like tree trunks, fists like lump hammers, and a temper as short as his fuse. So why she loved him, or whether she even did, that we shall never know. By all accounts, it was a regular night, as at a little after 11pm, Susan kissed goodnight to her two boys, who shared a mattress made of horsehair and straw, which nestled beside the kitchen fire. And as she stood on the cold stone step by the sink, she washed up the last of the bakery's spoons, dockers and earthenware crocks, which were baked black with burnt-on crumbs and crusts. With the candles out, the shutters down and the door's iron bolt slid tight, the shop was shut for the night. But before bed, Alexander trudged down into the dark basement. In the bakehouse was 14-year-old baker's assistant, John Johnston. And with this being his first week, being eager to please his master, John set about making the dough. 
and promised to wake his employer at 3 a.m. sharp. But that night, no one would sleep. It began just shy of midnight. As raised voices echoed through the thick oak beams of the bakehouse ceiling, the man's gruff bellow was furious. The woman's timid squeak was terrified. As with repeated thumps and thuds, as furniture crashed, crockery smashed, and a petrified woman was repeatedly dragged from wall to door to floor, screaming, You kill me! You kill me! It was then that the man growled, I'll murder you before I'm done with you. But fearing for his job and his life, 14-year-old John Johnston did nothing. As the violent beating of Susan Moyer continued late into the night. Susan hated her life, so she drank. Because she drank, so her husband would beat her. And because he would beat her, so she drank. And yet for Susan, there was no escape. As a devout Catholic, the church had denied her any chance of a divorce. As a wife, legally she had no right to separate. As a victim, her only refuge was the dreaded workhouse. As a daughter, she was the sole responsibility of her spouse to feed, clothe and even chastise. And as a woman, having promised before God to love, honour and obey her husband, being trapped in a violent marriage, Susan was stuck till death has do part. By the crack of dawn, the only sound heard was the roar of the bakehouse ovens. As in a gruff silence, Alexander bundled the freshly baked bread into a wicker basket. And as John readied himself to make the morning's deliveries, he noticed that his master's fists were cut, scuffed and caked with blood. Having climbed the stone stairs, the first time John saw Susan that morning was in the shop. As in his own words, he would state in court, She looked a dreadful sight. But being barely able to hold herself upright, as she unsteadily stumbled, Susan tried to prop herself up against the wooden counter. But every time she did, she would wince in pain, as her fingers, hands and forearms were black and swollen, having tried to protect her face from the onslaught of his fists. But her face was unrecognisable, as being a mismatched puffy mess of lumps, bumps, scrapes and cuts. John could hardly work out where her nose stopped and her cheeks began. As with her right eye being too swollen to open, through tears, Susan saw very little and said even less. By 3pm, being barely halfway through her working day, 
Susan's cousin popped into the shop, and although the sight of black eyes and the sound of screaming was commonplace in the bakery, for Mary Ann Bryant, this turbulent relationship had truly taken a turn for the worst. Whether Susan staggered, stumbled, and slurred her words, owing to an excess of booze or a volley of beatings, is unknown. As having knocked her so insensible that she'd forgotten one too many bread orders that day, with Alexander being furious, he pummeled the puffy swollen flesh of Susan's ruptured face with his hard bloodied fists. And with the timid woman, being too shattered to simply raise her blackened hands to shield herself. As roughly a dozen blows rained down, each fist struck her squarely in the face and back, again and again and again. Having demanded that his lazy feckless wife quit her dilly-dallying and refill the window display with fresh stock, Susan tried to arrange a line of two penny loaves. But as her world spun wildly and everything went black, she lost consciousness and collapsed. There was a hard thud as she landed face first on the hard wooden floor, ripping open a one inch gash across her forehead as a trickle of blood wept from her swollen right eye. Shocked by the ferocity of his violence, Marianne cried, Get her up! She needs help! To which Alexander, his sole focus being to bake a fresh batch of York biscuits, snorted, Ah, let that drunken bitch wait there! And with Marianne being too slight to lift the cataleptic woman up, There Susan stayed, slumped under the buns in the shop's window, as customers came and went, crusty loaves in hand, chattering and gawping, as the battered and barely conscious woman lay in a crumpled heap. A short while later, Susan slowly regained consciousness and through bloodied and malformed lips, which mumbled barely intelligible words, as drool spooled down her chin. She begged Marianne to ask her husband to let her lie down, to rest and recover from her injuries. But Alexander said no. Eager to aid her semi-comatose cousin, who struggled on, in the shop for many hours more, serving breads to bemused customers. Mary Ann set about covering some of Susan's chores, like washing their clothes, cleaning the parlour, and cooking the family's dinner, as she tended to Susan's cuts and swellings. But it would all be for nothing. At a little after 8pm, on Saturday the 23rd of March, as their two boys sat silently at the kitchen table, their heads staring at their laps for fear of incurring their father's fists, Alexander slapped Susan hard 
having found a half-empty bottle of gin hidden under a nook. By now, being so used to his abuse, and with her face being a bulging mess of tough puffy welts, she barely felt his hand impact. As her salty sobs mixed with blood, making it seem like she wept pink tears. And yet, still she screamed. As to Susan, the misery and the pain of her daily beatings were as commonplace as breathing. Moments later, Marianne served dinner. And having said grace, the family sat down to mutton chops, potatoes, carrots, peas and gravy. The aggravated Alexander should have been moderately happy, given the day's many disturbances, that his dinner was on the table, on time, and that Marianne was actually a good cook. But still he sat there, fuming about the failures of his drunken wife. And as Alexander scooped an overloaded fork of food into his bearded gaping mouth, he spat a volley of peas as he shouted, This is more like gravy, not the watery soup you make. But as Susan was too tired to retort, which he took as insolence, he hurled half of a hard-baked loaf at her head, as its rough edges ripped open an old wound. Through sheer agony, with every inch of her exhausted body being bloodied, beaten and bruised. As Susan tried to stand up, her trembling legs barely held up by two blackened arms, Alexander slammed her back down into her seat, forcing her freshly bruised backside down onto the hard wooden chair. As with a mashed mouthful of potato, he spat, If you don't finish your meat, I'll force it down your throat! And like a dark shadow of death, which loomed over the tiny trembling woman, there he stood, staring, seething and snarling. As her numb fingers struggled to raise the shaking fork to her swollen lips. But seeing her inability to eat, not owing to her injuries, but due to her drunkenness and selfish petulance, as Susan's broken fingers dropped the fork, Alexander exploded with rage. The assault was sustained, vicious and swift. As a flurry of heavy fists and booted feet flew into Susan's legs, back and face. And as the man who had once sworn an oath, in church and to God, that he would always love, honour and protect her, as his wife cowered on the hard wooden floor, curled up like a ruptured ball, as she screamed for him to stop, he savagely beat her until her body went limp. But Susan didn't die. Not then, not yet. As even though her pummeled face was said to be the colour of sheep's liver, her swollen lids had rendered her right eye blind, and her brown wiry hair was matted thick with congealed blood. 
she struggled on for the sake of her boys. And all the while, as Marianne washed her cousin's cuts with cool water, Alexander sat by the fire, his feet up, smoking a pipe. One hour later, as Susan unsteadily slumped against the sink, desperate to complete her nightly chores for fear of upsetting her husband further, as her aching fingers scrubbed the bacon crusts of the earthenware pots, and as an irregular gush of blood thrummed and thumped through her aching brain, suddenly everything went black, and again she collapsed. The heavy thud should have alerted Alexander that his wife was in trouble. Her stillness should have rang an alarm that all was not well. But it didn't. As seeing his lazy, useless wife lying down like an unruly mutt, her stupid head slumped against the cold kitchen step like the silly cow was spitefully defying him by taking a little nap. He bellowed, Get up, you drunken bitch! And when she didn't, wearing hard leather boots, he repeatedly kicked her legs, her body, and her head. Susan didn't fight back. She didn't scream. And she didn't even move. As being either so bruised unconscious or beyond caring she just lay there and with Alexander once again refusing to pick her up Susan lay slumped in an insensible mess on the cold kitchen floor for the next two hours by Sunday the 24th of March with Alexander having denied her the right to rest in her own bed as her persistent bleeding would have soiled his sheets, Susan was moved onto the horsehair and straw mattress that her children slept in. Nestled on the floor, next to the kitchen fire, like a dog. And there she lay, silent, still, and barely breathing, except in slow, raspy gasps. At 8pm, Marianne returned, and when she asked Alexander how Susan was, he huffed that she was in a very bad state, and that he was astonished that it had lasted as long as it had. And when asked if he had sent for a doctor, he said no, there was no need. But Marianne insisted. Dr. Joshua Watkins of nearby Chandos Street was called for and arrived at 25 Bridges Street just after 11am on the morning of Monday the 25th of March 1850 by which time 39-year-old Susan Moyer was dead. On Monday the 6th of May 1850 at the Old Bailey Alexander Moyer pleaded not guilty to his wife's murder. Having heard the testimony 
examined the scene and viewed the body. A jury of 15 men assembled to debate the case at the Two Spies public house on Bridges Street. The evidence was overwhelming. Every inch of Susan's skin was covered in a patchwork of lumps, cuts, bruises and breaks. Some were old, some were new, but all told the tale of a terrified woman fearing for her life. And having removed six ounces of coagulated blood from her brain, the surgeon confirmed that Susan had been beaten to death as she lay either unconscious or dying. In his summing up, Mr. Justice Creswell stated that if the jury felt that Alexander's intention was to beat his wife to death, then he must be charged with murder. But that if by beating his wife, his intention was only to cause her pain, and that as a result she died, then he must be charged with manslaughter. After a very short deliberation, for the brutal death and the physical, mental and emotional abuse he had inflicted on Susan over two decades, the jury found Alexander Moyer guilty of manslaughter. Alexander Moyer was sentenced to life, but he served just 12 years. And although, as an East End pauper, Susan had escaped poverty, disease, and malnutrition, by becoming the wife of a prosperous West End baker, being beaten black and blue every day of her married life, the one horror she could never escape was her violent husband. Susan Moyer was buried in a pauper's grave, somewhere in East London, but her exact whereabouts are unknown. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget, if you are a murky miler, to stay tuned for extra goodies after the break. A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who, following my previous advert, desperately wanted to have super perky sky-pointing tits and lethally long dongs which dragged along the floor. And those lucky people are Taya Brendel, Ladislav Eichler, Amanda Jane Lamb, Debbie Halliwell, Robert Lee Floyd Williams, Jason Abercrombie, and Ashley Shannon. And a special thank you to Stacey Conover, who, as a mega patron, not only gets gravity defying boobs for life and a man trumpet so long it's a trip hazard, but she will also receive a very exclusive Murder Mile mug. Only one of two currently in existence. Ooh. But of course, my biggest thank you of the week goes out to everyone who listens to Murder Mile. Thank you to you all. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. 
Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Posting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Bono Astente. Astente. Welcome, murder mileists from all around the world. We are truly an international podcast. Uh, I get loads of people on my tour from different countries. Sometimes I have to go home and have a little look in uh, geography books to see, see where it is they come from. Although my geography is good, there's a lot of countries in the world, but we've got people from all around the world now, which is great, who are getting in touch. So welcome everyone from all around the world. Uh, Welcome to Extra Mile. I say this every week, but here we go. Uh, welcome to Extra Mile. This is the extra bit, which goes at the end of each episode. It's the waffly bit. It's the bit where I, it's all unscripted. Uh, I just have a couple of notes with me, but I don't read them. Uh, there's no sound effects. There's no music. There's no, you know, it's not, there's no editing points at all. This is just a nice kind of relaxing kind of me chatting to you guys uh, about the case we've just been discussing. Uh, just like last week, I'm waiting for the kettle to boil. I have a coffee. I normally start the show uh, recording with a coffee in front of me, which gets cold after about 20 minutes. So the next 40 minutes, it's it's disgusting, Ugh, cold coffee. So now I've got a tea on the go. And even better, oh, 
What a treat. I was gonna, oh, hang on. Teaser out to go. Teaser. Yeah. You may recognize that sound from uh, last week's episode. The uh, Marion Lee Smith episode. The kettle at the end was my kettle. Yeah, all the, all the sounds you hear, well, as many as I can, I try to record them live and, uh, or keep, make them as real as possible. So with the Marion Lee Smith, when you heard the, the kettle boiling at the end, that was my kettle. My kettle is, has a starring role. <gasps> How exciting. Cup of tea is down, tea, milk, two sugars. And even though, as I was about to say, even though I'm meant to be on a diet this week, those bastards at Tesco's decided to... Oh, little Trump then, apologise for that. Uh, there were some BFG, Mr Kipling fondant fancies. Oh, going for 39p and there's eight of the bastards. Oh, so in front of me is fondant fancies. If you don't know what fondant fancies are, oh my God, they're good. I must admit I have a weakness for very sweet cakes. So it's uh, probably the size of half a thumb... It's a little square cake. It's like bite size. Um, it's a sponge, kind of the kind of sponge you might have in a uh, or a Battenberg. Or I do love a Battenberg. And it's got icing all over it. Then it's got fondant on the top. And oh my god, that was good. I don't know what flavour it is. What is it? Straw Finkel and Cream Fancies. The strawberry finkel, you ain't. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's good. No, oh. I strongly advise going out and buying some some Mr. Kipling fondant fancies. Obviously, if there anyone working for Mr. Kipling listens to this podcast, I'm more than happy to be sponsored by your great product. Product, I have endorsed it for many years, and I have the stomach to prove it. Oh, a cup of tea, good. Um, so. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Uh, if enjoyed is the right word. Bit of a strong one this week. Um, quite a horrifying case. I know. I know some people love focusing on on cases where there's a man and he cuts people's heads off, and because he, he is evil and bad. But I think, I think this is a, a really shocking case because it's because it's it's normal. Do you know, it's something that happens all the time, and people get away with it. This kind of Domestic abuse, whether whether a husband against a wife or a wife against a husband, or or do you know uh, with uh, civil partnerships now, it's you know it doesn't matter whether you're, whether you're gay or straight or you know male or female. There's always, unfortunately, with some relationships there is violence within, and it does seem to be that you know people who are violent to their spouses, it's because that's the kind of family they come from. They were probably beaten up by their mothers or the fathers as well and they think that that's the way that they're meant to act or you know they've never been able to stand up to their own parents so that's their out is to take it out on someone else take it out on their children or their spouses and they so that's i think that's why at the start of this show i did say i always say this at the start you know if you are the victim of abuse or you have inflicted abuse that there is help out there because i think quite often even though the people who are um you know what i hate to use the word victims but they are you know the victim of domestic abuse it's worth remembering always that 
on the flip side of it, the person who's doing the beating is a victim themselves. It's just they choose not to see it. They were they were beaten up by someone else, and that's why they do what they do. Not because they're up, not because they're particularly angry about what the person's doing. It's just they it's their only way to lash out. So, do you know? There are really two victims in both sides of that story, which is not that I'm saying that you should sympathise with, with Alexander Moyer, but I guarantee you if we were to look into his life, into his back history, of which there's no details about, I bet it would be a horrible life. I bet he was beaten the shit out of by his dad every single day of his life. And that's all he knew. He didn't. He knew nothing except violence. He never understood love. Um... So yeah, quite a horrible, horrible story that one. So I thought I'd share that with you. It's I, I found that in the uh, the Old Bailey archives. Um, slowly over time, they're starting to digitise a lot of their their court records. Uh, th- this is the earliest case that we've dealt with so far, eighteen fifty. I probably won't go any further than that. Back in time, because it's it's really hard to get the information. Because um, obviously the first. The first real national census in this country was 1811, but even that is, it's shonky. It's not particularly good. You know, you you don't start getting good national censuses until the, you know, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, and then it starts to really kick in. Especially after the war as well, after World War Two, World War One, World War Two, it really starts to to get good. But prior to that, it's 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 a bit loose. Uh so I thought I'd use extra mile as we always do to fill in a couple of details that might be um, interesting for you. So I looked at the national census. Uh, oh, I'm desperately looking at this cake. Oh, it's, it's taunting me. It's taunting me. Hey, Extra Mile listeners, this is actually just a quick break into Extra Mile here. Uh, I need to make you aware of something uh, right here. Uh, I actually recorded... Uh, murder mile and then recorded extra mile and then as sometimes i do i go back in and i rewrite murder mile because it just wasn't right the ending wasn't quite right so i should really point something out before we go any further um at the trial for the murder of susan moyer the surgeon examined susan uh he found no alcohol on her breath uh that her liver that her liver was healthy and that there was no evidence that she was a heavy drinker so although the uh, defence had said that she was an alcoholic and that's why he beat her to death, there was no evidence for that. Mr Justice Creswell, when it was announced that uh, it was a man, it was going to be a manslaughter charge, he stated that it was a little short of a murder um, and that although Alexander Moyer should have been executed, he actually wasn't because it was a, a manslaughter charge. He wasn't executed. Instead, he was... Tr- he was to be transported overseas for the rest of his natural life, which meant he would be sent to Australia uh, or America at that point, except he'd never actually left England. On the 2nd of July, 1862, having served just 12 years in Woking Prison, Alexander Moyer was released. He moved to County Durham and he died in the spring of 1867, aged 60. He never remarried. Uh, that was my original ending to murder mile but i changed it because i wanted it to be more about susan as opposed to because here it's actually more about him and he's not that important it's really susan's story uh so i thought i'd put that in uh let's return back to extra mile so um it's hard to get the details about this right if, if you look at the court documents for this case they do actually say 
it was either number 24 Bridges Street or 25 Bridges Street, which is a real pain in the arse. Uh, so it's hard to pin down exactly where it was. Um, uh, unfortunately, as this murder happened in the nineteen in the eighteen fifties, the next national census wasn't until eighteen fifty one, April eighteen fifty one. By which time Susan was dead and Alexander was in prison. Uh, so we were one year too early to see whether they were on Bridges Street, but they weren't. So in eighteen forty one. Uh, they lived in uh, Oxford Place in Chelsea. Oxford Place doesn't exist anymore. It's number seven Oxford Place. Uh, they seem to have a bakery there. So he'd been a bakery for a long time. Um, because Bridges Street, which later became Catherine Street, had been... Uh, the 17th century version had been entirely demolished. So except for the Theatre Royal and uh, Old... Old Nell of Jewelry, which which is the pub that's still there, the parts of it still are still are still original from the days, from that era. Everything else is kind of late nineteenth century, so it's all been demolished. Uh, and because the street was renamed and renumbered twice, which is really annoying, it's almost impossible to to point exactly where the location is. I got near to it, I think. So I've done a little video. I've put it post it on time, online of where I think it is. It seems to be on the site where the, the Novello Theatre is now. So just down from the Theatre Royal, there's um, a theatre called the Novello Theatre, which is at the back of Catherine Street and uh, Catherine Street and Tavistock Street. Uh, it kind of it's on the back end of the Aldwych, so it's on either side of the Waldorf Hotel. If you've been to London, you'll recognise it. Um, it's quite a quite a, a famous theatre. It was opened in 1905. But literally everything prior to that had been obliterated. That area of town, especially in kind of the 1870s, 1880s, was entirely obliterated. Uh, but it was a theatre. It was originally... it was They called it the Waldorf Theatre. Then it became the Strand Theatre. Then it became the Whitney Theatre. And then a couple of years ago, they decided to call it the Novello Theatre after Ivan Novello. Um, who, the, the, obviously the uh, famous singer and actor. Um, and it, it was kind of ironic that it was kind of the theatre that was famous for playing black comedies about murder, such as Arsenic and Old Lace. I was going to put that into the opening of this about the irony of it, but I decided not to. I decided not to have uh, a kind of a jokey, sarcastic start. I just thought I'd, I'd keep it straight this time. Um, Susan's Grave, uh, unlisted. I've looked... Uh, I can't find it anywhere. There is a chance that documents may have been destroyed during World War Two. We lost a lot of important records during the bombings and the Blitz. Uh, many of the many of the documentation was actually, you know, when the Blitz was going on, loads of documents were hidden in bunkers and stored. But unfortunately, many many didn't survive. So uh, we have no information about where Susan's uh, grave is. It is believed that she because. Um, because her husband was in prison and she was dead, basically any money would have gone to the state anyway or to her next of kin. Uh, so technically it, she would have been put into a pauper's grave because no one would have been able to pay for her funeral unless her family did, which we don't know about. Uh, and also what happened to her children, we don't know. I've searched. Um, don't know whether they got put into the workhouse. Maybe Marianne Bryant, who was... Uh, Susan's next of kin, nearest next of kin. Maybe she took them on. We don't know. Um, 
What happened to Alexander? Ooh, a cup of tea. Originally, when I went searching to find out what happened to Alexander Moyer, um, I had a little search around. So I was going through all the different censuses because he did seem to disappear. Um, and then I thought I found him overseas. So I was going through all the, the shipping manifests because you can actually, because he was uh, sentenced to serve overseas, he was transported. Um, so either he would have gone to America or he would have gone to Australia. So I was looking at all the shipping manifests for all the prisoners that went overseas. And I thought, I, I, I couldn't really find him. He didn't appear on any ships. Which is really weird because normally they're quite good. But, it, you know, um, uh, and then I actually found Alexander Moyer. Uh, and Alexander Moyer of the same age being transported to America. And it turned out that he uh, was released and then he'd remarried and he got three kids. And I was like, oh, God, that's a really interesting story. Do you know, a violent abuser. And he, uh, I think he served five years and then uh, then left prison and remarried. But it turned out it wasn't him. It turned out there was a lot of Alexander Moyers. It was quite a popular name. Obviously, Alexander and Moyer, both quite popular Scottish names. His age... Uh, Obviously, they didn't have the exact date when he was transported. It was just basically a year. So we had basic details to go on. Um, so I backtracked and I thought, OK, maybe he wasn't transported because just because they said that was his sentence, it doesn't mean that's, that's what happened to him. And I was right. I was right on the money. Uh, so I found his prison records. So he was uh, prisoner number 11110, Alexander Moyer. Um, convicted of manslaughter at Central Criminal Court, which is the Old Bailey, on the 6th of May, 1850. Uh, he was originally uh, transported to life, which meant he would have gone to America. Um, and the licence was granted on the 2nd of July, 1862. So that was his uh, um, licence to be released. And he was released from Woking Prison. So, I'd never heard of Woking Prison before. So I started doing some digging. So... Now this this gets quite interesting. Uh, Woking Prison was actually called Woking Invalid Prison, and it was opened in 1859. So <coughs> it was opened uh, nine years after he was convicted, and it's primarily for invalid male convicts. Um, Excuse me, I knew that was going to happen. Um, so between 1862 and 1867, it's, uh, uh, what they would do was they'd have loads of prisoners there and they were responsible for the construction of Broadmoor Criminal Asylum, Ooh, which is very exciting. Uh, now, uh, Woking Invalid Prison was only open for 30 years. Um, uh, but I'm, so I'm, there's loads of information. I'm just trying to get it exactly right. So w when they say it was disabled prisoners... Uh, it was not just for those who were physically ill. It was also for those who were suffering from a mental illness as well. Um, let's get down here. Uh, it was quite a brutal prison by all regards. Obviously, this is the mid-1800s. So, um, obviously, in prisons today. I'm not saying it's cushy in prisons today, but obviously they have televisions. And they have playstations in their rooms and they have nice warm beds and they have regular food and, you know, their, their, their rights are looked after. Whereas in the 1800s, there was none of that. It was literally, you're in prison and you're going to work your ass off. 
Uh, and whether you were physically or mentally disabled, you were there basically uh, to work. So these guys were there to help build the construction of uh, Broadmoor Psychiatric Prison. Uh, there was roughly around 300 prisoners there and it was already, uh, they regarded it as very cramped um, and inadequate. Uh, now, even though he did, he was sent to prison, it's worth pointing out that prison wasn't, do you know, uh, there's not, not, not nice things for him to do. Do you know, quite often in these prisons, people always say about breaking up rocks there was a lot of that going on prisoners were sent there to break up rocks they were pre there to do construction they would work long days they would have really bad food brutally beaten all of their beddings were covered in fleas and <coughs> all horrible stuff there's quite a few punishments also if you look look online you can th see a thing called the water wheel and basically uh, it's a large water wheel that basically you climb up with your hands and feet and you're there to do that 12 hours a day. And it's not connected to anything. It's just a punishment. It's just basically... So all those people who go to gyms and go uh, 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 up and down, up and down, exercising themselves, they're to do that 12, 12 hours a day. And oddly, it wasn't connected to anything. You would think if you've got... If you're forcing 20 prisoners in a row to turn a water wheel, you'd think that you would connect it up to some kind of... Some kind of... I know they obviously haven't got electricity working then, but something some kind of power seems ridiculous um anyway um he so he could have been transported why they didn't transport him is a bit of a mystery um although being transported even though it sounds nice like if someone were to say oh you're going to be transported to australia it's some people would actually prefer to stay in britain and be tortured on the water wheel as opposed to go australia go to australia because you'd be put on a ship in southampton and you'd be sailed to australia which would take six months there surrounded by rats uh obviously you don't really get much food uh what was going on at the time as well which was something that i was looking into recently was uh scuttling so um because these the boats that would take people to australia and america all the convicts these weren't government boats these were privateers who were working to the government and they would get paid per amount of prisoners uh, but what some of them would do the more unscrupulous ones would just scuttle the ship so they'd take the ship out into the waters they'd scuttle it the crew would sail away and then the, the captain would come back and go ah oh, my ship sunk uh, i need payment for my ship which no longer exists and i i want a pound for every prisoner that was lost and that would happen. That did did happen. And the chance of surviving the voyage to Australia was just remote. It's like really chance of you actually making there probably wouldn't happen. I, I'm not. Too, I've got it written down somewhere what the figures were, but the figures were not good. Not good that you would survive the voyage. And even when you got to Australia, firstly there wasn't really people there. It hadn't been populated. It was quite a barren place. And when you got there, especially to Australia, you had to build your own prison. When you made it to parts of America, also you had to build your own prison. Not your own personal one, but, you know, if they were building a prison, same as, as we were saying with Woking Prison, Alexander Moyer had to build uh, Broadmoor Psychiatric Prison. They, that, that's part of their job. Um, but the one good thing with being transported is if you survived the journey and if you survived 
being uh, forced to build their own prison and you survived being in Australia, which was surrounded by loads of poisonous uh, animals and things like that. Snakes and spiders, etc., etc. Um, because they were in such need of labour, you know, uh, good strong men who could do work, even though you were transported for life, you would make it to Australia and then they'd go, okay, look, we really need you to work for us. So we'll cut your sentence short. You'll serve just five years. You're technically a free man. Um, but you'll come and work for us as, as a labourer. You'll get paid. And you can request that your family comes out to you as well. So that would hop, happen uh, quite often. <sighs> but, but that's all the extra stuff I have on that case. Um Unfortunately, I've used pretty much every element of the court document. It was quite detailed in there, in the parts, but obviously it was all those final four days. There was nothing about her life prior to that, so that was a real struggle to get. Um, so, hope you enjoyed that. Um, Murder Mile, this season. Obviously... Uh, we're coming up to do a big multi-parter that I've mentioned before, which is all very exciting. Uh, so same as the Blackout Ripper, there'll be a big multi-parter. Whether it's an eight-parter or a ten-parter, I don't know. You know what happened last time. It was meant to be a four-parter. It turned in, turned in four-parter, went to be a ten, turned out being an eight. Um, so I'm gearing up for that, but I need time to really do the rest of the research on that. So... This is episode 44. We'll get have episode 45 next week. Uh, then uh, we will do the Freddie Mills episode. So that's 46 and 47 is Freddie Mills. Hopefully that's only a two-parter. I think it is from what I've planned. And then what I'll do, because I need time to uh, get to the archives and get all the information for the multi-parter, um, I will do a... Oh, I'm staring at that cake. That's all I'm thinking about is that cake. I'm going to have to eat it soon. Um... So I'll do uh, three extra mile episodes, which I've kind of already planned out, and I've got some good fun stuff to do in that. So that will go out, so you can enjoy that. Uh, and then we'll come back and we'll do the multi-parter, which will be exciting. I might take a week off in between, um, just to give myself at least just a couple of days just to recoup, because I, I, I slightly burnt myself out. I think I've been slowing down a lot with these episodes. They've been taking a lot longer to write. And I actually, the other day, took took one day off, I thought, sod it, I can't do it anymore. And I took a day off and it actually helped me a lot. I actually felt much better the next day, so I'm going to need to take a week off. Because I haven't had time off since the June before last. Yeah, <laughs> that was my last my last time I had time off. So, but uh, that will give me the energy to keep going into the next season as well. Ha <laughs> ha more murder mile. Um, So, exciting news. It's close to being finished. Uh, I am setting up a Murder Mile e-shop. E Hopefully that's the sound you're making right now. Um, hearing about the e-shop. So it'll be filled with um, Murder Mile merchandise. Now, I, I can't... Because all the kind of merchandise... Because I only live on a, like a tiny little boat. And I'm nowhere near a post box. And I'm nowhere near my PO box where I can get stuff delivered to. I, it has to be practical. So 
I'm not going to say what I'm doing at the moment, but I've got a couple of things that I can send out from here and there'll be a nice little package, but there'll be st stuff that you can order online as well. So there'll be some interesting little goodies that you can enjoy and uh, they'll be uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and not too expensive as well. I'm not going to, not going to fleece everyone. Um, got some uh, murder mile mugs, which uh, will be a kind of a, a murder mile, uh, like a tea drinker's kit. So you can sit down, it, you know, it's got a nice murder mile mug with your badges and your stickers and your uh, fridge magnets in there and some proper English tea and some biscuits and some sweets. So you can open up the pack and you can go, oh, fantastic. And you can listen to murder mile whilst having a nice cup of tea. Obviously, there won't be fondant fancies in there because they won't survive. This one won't survive the next three minutes. Uh, and I'm putting in there all of the original scripts from murder mile as well. So in bulks of 10 episodes apiece. Um, they, they will be ebooks. Uh, I was going to do them as print off books, but I think the logist. I'm trying to limit it. I don't want. I don't want the Murder Mile shop to be a nightmare for me to deal with, you know. I don't want to be sitting there wrapping up parcels all day and dealing with such and such being shipped to whatever country. I just. I, just, I want it to be self sufficient so I can concentrate on doing the podcast. Uh, so there'll be ebooks on there so basically you can download all of the scripts all the original scripts all unedited uh all with scenes that you've never heard before because i took them out for time or for whatever reasons they'll be on there uh there is a i have a link where if you want t-shirts or you want tote bags or things like that uh i have a threadless store um that's kind of good for me because it means I, I don't touch it at all they are literally it's a company they have my logo they do all the printing and the shipping and the finances and they just send me a message saying you've got a sale and I go thank you very much and they give me a very very small uh, portion of uh, the cost of it but then again they do all the work which is good uh, so hopefully the murder mile e-shop will be up hopefully October 1st um, be quite basic at the start but I'm in touch with some very talented people uh, who are interested in creating some unique pieces for the Murder Mile shop. I'm keeping a bit quiet about that at the moment, but I think that could be quite interesting. And um, for those of you out there who like, you know, who want to go beyond kind of badges and T-shirts and uh, stickers and things like that, hopefully this will be something interesting. Uh, but that might not happen till after Chris. Christmas. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, that'll be the Murder Mile shop. It'll be on the Murder Mile website. Ha ha ha. Um, cool. That's almost it. We're coming close, very close to the end of this. Normally, Murder Mile is a lot longer, uh, but I haven't really got much to say about this uh, story. Um, I thought I'd throw in something for uh, any of you out there who listen to Murder Mile while they're in bed and they've probably fallen asleep. I know that I do. I do exactly the same. I pop, pop on a podcast and uh, while I'm, mostly when I'm in bed and then you kind of fall asleep, don't you? You kind of get 20 minutes in, you fall asleep. You wake up in the morning and it's like, it's it's finished and you're like, oh shit, where did I get to? So uh, for those of you who have fallen asleep, I thought I'd throw this in. So, hello. Hope you're having a nice sleep. And dreaming about clouds and bunnies and soft pillows as you're lying there and you're drifting slowly into sleep having a lovely sleep 
dreaming about soft things and oh clouds and everything's lovely and then a killer kills you and he slices your throat and he stabs you 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 and he cuts off your head <laughs> obviously if you're asleep and you've just woken up to that i apologize <laughs> or maybe you're driving who knows hope you're not falling asleep while you're driving anyway um that murder mile for this week hope you enjoyed it i'm about to enjoy a tea and a cake and then now i'm about to go in and redo those voices because i really couldn't get those voices to work the alexander moyers he's meant to be he's meant to be scottish but oh i don't know i tried it i tried it today and the words he said just didn't work like mudder okay you can get away with saying mudder if you know that he's uh, Scottish, but the, the, all the other words he said it didn't have a Scottish lilt to them. So I kept doing it and he kept turning a J- Jamaican. So I'm going to have to re-record all of those voices now. Ugh, what a nightmare. Um, anyway, hope you enjoyed that. That was Murder Mile for this week and I will see you all next week. No song this week. I know, that's disgraceful. Have a good week. Be good. Bye. 